Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson from The Moth, and I'll be your host this time. At The Moth, we ask people to share their most personal stories live in front of strangers. In this hour, we'll hear about a little girl who believed a single chocolate bar was the cause of her family's greatest anguish, a documentary filmmaker who got caught up chasing someone else's dream, and this first story about a mother who loved her son so much she had him immortalized in clay. Jay Martell is a writer from California. When he pitched this story to me, I was hooked from the very first line. Here's Jay, live at the Moth. When I was 18 years old, my mother paid a sculptor to make a clay bust of my head. (laughs) Strangely enough, I don't remember thinking there was anything bizarre about the head. But the head is definitely bizarre. It's, it's big, it's slightly larger than life size, and incredibly heavy. 40 pounds of solid brown clay. It also has this, these flowing Peter Frampton locks, and the smug expression that I wore through most of my teens. Imagine a bust of Alexander the Great looking really judgmental, and really, really high. (laughs) To me, it's a reminder of everything unlikable about me at that age. Its mere existence is a monument to my youthful self-absorption and narcissism. I never liked the head. After it was made, I went off to college and then moved to New York to try to make it as a writer. My mother spent the next 25 years moving the head around from place to place through three different marriages, nine different houses and apartments. And I never really thought about the head until a few years ago, my wife Sarah and I were visiting my mother and um, her third husband, my stepfather, Stuart. And we were chatting amicably in the living room. And then I suddenly noticed that over there on the bureau, where my head used to be, there was nothing there. And um, I asked my mom about it, and she said that Stuart found the head mildly disturbing. (laughs) And that she'd moved it into the garage. And that since I'm here, I might as well take it home with me, conveniently forgetting that I never liked the head to begin with. So Sarah and I walk into the garage, and we look around, and... um, There next to the weed whacker, there's this big brown cardboard box marked neatly with black Sharpie on the side, Jay's head. (laughs) My my mother's very organized. And um, we open it up and look down in it, and sure enough, my head looking up at us, still 18, still smug. And I, I turn to my wife and say, joking, so you want it? And she says a little too quickly, no. Which is the right answer, right? I mean, why would I want to be in a relationship with someone who liked my creepy clay head? But I still couldn't help but feel rejected. Like, there was like a piece of me in my mother's garage that nobody wanted. It's like a mutant child in the basement. Anyway, we, we left the head in the garage. Then two years after that, my mother and Stuart got divorced. And it was very acrimonious and she moved out of the house that they shared. And she called me afterwards and said, you know, there are some things that I wasn't able to take with me in the move, and um, you should feel free to pick them up if you want them. And I said, like what? And she said, like, oh, those 
paintings that Aunt Lorna gave us. I, I don't need any more art, Mom. And so there's also the, you know, the big fan, your head, the box of Christmas ornaments. And so, wait, wait a second. You left my head in Stuart's garage? And I instantly have these fantasies of, of Stuart channeling all his rage against my mother into the clay bust of me as an 18-year-old, you know, like smashing it to smithereens with a nine iron or sliding it off his roof and watching it smash on the sidewalk or covering it with female dog hormone and putting it out on the sidewalk. And... <laughs> anyway, I figure that's it. I mean, that's the good news. I don't have to worry about the head anymore, except my stepfather didn't destroy it. In fact, thinking he was doing me a favor, one day he drives it in his car over to my dad's house and leaves it there. So I get this call late one night out of the blue, and it's like, hey, Jay, it's dad. Um, Stuart came by with your head earlier today, and uh, we were wondering when you're gonna come by and pick it up. And of course, at this point, I'm thinking like, God, this head is like my monkey's paw. It's like the head that won't go away. And I, I tell him, I say, Dad, you know, I got a lot of work right now. I can't just drop everything and go up and pick up the head. You know, can you just, can you just hold on to it for a while? And he says, you know, um, your stepmother and I are really trying to reduce clutter in our home. <laughs> I think we'd both really appreciate it if you got it as soon as possible. Now, this rejection of the head hurts me more than any of the other head rejections, more than my wife scoffing at the mere idea of taking it home or my, my wife leaving it in her ex-husband's garage or my mother leaving it in her ex-husband's garage because my father left us when, when I was 10. And as a result, his approval has always been something that I desired more than anyone else's and because it's been so elusive. And so this really sticks with me. And I say, Dad, this is going to sound completely ridiculous, but it hurts my feelings that you don't want my head. <laughs> and he says, I know exactly what you mean. And I think, for a second, this is great. We've reached this whole new level of father-son understanding. And then he says, there's a painting of me in the downstairs closet that nobody wants. <laughs> and I know immediately the painting he's talking about. It's, it's a portrait that my grandmother had made of him when he was 20 years old. She had it hanging over her fireplace until she died. And, uh, and I don't want it, you know? And so... So it seems like we've reached this standoff, right? Where we, neither one of us wants to take each other's crappy art. So um, I say, look, Dad, do whatever you want with it. Okay, throw it away. I can't deal with it. And I, and I hang up the phone, I go to sleep. And I have a, a very fitful night's sleep, tossing and turning. And I wake up the next morning and I think, you know, I'm going to go get that head. And I, I'm going to drive it to my dad's and get it. And, and my, my rationale is, if somebody's going to throw this thing away, it should be me. And um, so I get up there. And by the time I get up there, my dad's already, already put it in his basement. And um, to get into the basement in my dad's house, there's this little door in the back of the house. You have to crouch down to kind of get through the door. And I, I do that, I go in there, and I'm in the basement, and there's the head staring smugly at the water heater, and I, I go over, and I, and I pick it up, and it's, kind of, it's even heavier than I remember. It's like it gets its gravity from Jupiter or something. It's really, it really weighs a lot. I'm, and I'm kind of carrying it across the basement. I hunch down to get back through that little door, and part of my spine just goes ping. It's just like my back just said, screw it, I hate you, die. And I stagger out of this door into, into, the, into the sunlight, blinded by pain, and smack my head, my, my actual head on this tree branch. And, and, and I drop it, I drop the head. And for a moment, I think, thank God I'm free, it's over. 
But then I look down and the head is perfectly intact. It's like, I don't know, it's made of kryptonite or something. Staring up at me with that smirk. It's just like, it's like it's saying to me, you're old, dude. And so I pick it up and I put it in the car and my first impulse is to go straight to the nearest dumpster or, or garbage can and throw it away. But, but no, I, 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 there's just something about imagining the head piled under these dirty diapers and coffee filters and banana peels. I mean, it is kind of still me as an 18-year-old. I've got to figure out what to do with it. So I take it home and I, and I walk in the house and I put it on the kitchen counter and I hear this low, unearthly growling. And I look and my dog Walter is <laughs> glaring at the head, all the hair on his back standing on end. I've never heard a noise like this. I mean, this is, it's, like, it's like that scene in The Omen when the animals all go crazy on the devil child. It's, and then my wife walks in. She goes, hey, um, what are you doing that? I say, I'm throwing, throwing it away, I guess. She goes, okay, and walks out. And I want her to say, no, don't throw that away. That's a, that's a valuable family treasure. That's a part of your history. I am so desperate for one person to like my head, which is crazy because I don't like it and it's me. So I, I call my mom. I figure if I can figure out why the head was made in the first place, I can figure out what to do with it now. So I call my mom and I ask her. And she says, well, you were leaving home, and I was surprised how much that upset me. And, you know, after your dad left, you were, you were my anchor. You, you were the only person I could count on. And um, I thought that maybe having a piece of you would, would help me get through that time. And, and, and it did. And at some point, I just didn't need it anymore. And then she adds, it's, it's very heavy. So what I got from this is that the head is the product of a really difficult time in my family's life. And my mother basically dealt with my father leaving by creating a cult of personality with, with me as a personality and her as the cult. And finally she'd been able to leave, which is a good thing, right? I mean, cults are very hard to leave. And, and my wife and, and my dad had never been part of the cult, which is also a really good thing. Although, to be honest, I wish my dad had um, spent a couple years at the ashram. <laughs> I don't think I really understood the head fully, though, until a few months after that call, when, I, um, when our daughter Cleo was born, and I realized when I held her, that I'd started my own cult, basically. It was happening to me. I mean, I heedlessly and recklessly loved this individual for no other reason than, than that she was alive. And as for the head, I found a place for it in my garage between some fertilizer and some, uh, a bag of dead batteries. <laughs> uh, I think I've finally come to accept my place in a long chain of children destined to hold on to crappy art commissioned by their parents. <laughs> Cleo's going to have it a lot easier, though. Um, we're going to keep her head digital. <laughs> Thanks. That was Jay Martell. He's a comedy writer and won an Emmy for his work on the Comedy Central show Key and Peel. He also works in print, and you may have read him in The New Yorker, Spy, or Rolling Stone. Or you can also check out his novel, Channel Blue. To see a picture of Jay with Jay's head, go to our website, themoth.org. Personally, I think the head is kind of cute and would be tempted to buy it at a garage sale. When we come back, a child's burden of guilt carried for over 40 years.
The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. This next story is from Alexandra Rosas, who we first discovered on the Moth Pitch Line. She's from the Milwaukee area, but told this story for us at a show in Oklahoma. Here's Alexandra, live at the Moth. It's Thanksgiving, 1965. I'm barely five years old, and my family has just immigrated to the United States from Colombia, South America. All right, Colombia. It gets better. Um, (laughs) My mother wants to assimilate quickly, and she hits the ground running. I mean, her English is strong, and she gets a good job right away. My father spends his Sunday afternoons at Brown Deer Park. It's a bicycle racetrack, and my brother, or my father has this beautiful silver Chinelli bike. It's the only thing that he's brought from Colombia with him, and he races there. Now, my mother wants to do what all Americans are doing on that day. She wants to celebrate Thanksgiving. My father doesn't understand, but when my mother asks him to go to the store and get groceries, he does. As he's about to leave, I hear them having a loud discussion, something about his job. Now, I love my father, but with five brothers and sisters, I have to find a way to get him to myself. So I become his voice, his translator, and he takes me everywhere. We're getting ready to go, and I'm so excited because errand day with my father means that I get him to myself, and we also both get our special treat. We stop at a tavern. Now, before you start feeling sorry for me, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You take your kids to taverns, and in the 60s, there's a tavern on every corner, and there are places that feel more like living rooms than anywhere else. And they have fantastic names like Chuck's Place, George's on the Tracks, Ted and Betty's, my favorite, The Office, because you can lie about where you are, but you're still telling the truth. So I love that place. I love taverns. My dad gets his special treat, a tap beer, and I get my full-size Hershey candy bar. Now, in a house with six kids, candy bars don't happen, especially full-size candy bars. And if a candy bar does come into our house, it's divided into six pieces. Six teeny, tiny pieces. One for every kid, but not on errand day. So we go to the store, and I'm flying through it, and I know where everything is, and I'm, come on, Papa, come on, because I want to get to that tavern. We go up to check out like we usually do, but this time, something happens. My dad reaches in his pocket to get his wallet, but then he puts his wallet back in, and we have to leave our groceries there. Now, I don't understand what's happening But as long as the tavern happens, I don't care if we have food at home. (laughs) And I also don't want to question it because I want to get to the tavern. So we get to the car and we're driving, and I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that we get to the tavern. When I see my dad slow down in front of a white sign with black letters with a picture of a typewriter underneath, I know we're at the office. So my dad parks the car and he takes my hand and we walk in, and our... Our usual plan is, takes off my coat, he sets me up on the bar, and I smell this wonderful yeasty smell of beer, and I love the whole dim light and the way the sunlight barely comes in, and the dust motes are swirling in the air, and there's all this yeast from beer. I love it. So we sit down at the bar, my dad orders his tap beer, and I'm waiting for him to give me the clue to ask for my candy bar, but he doesn't say anything. So I lean in closer and I say, Papa, mi dulce, Papa, my candy. But he just takes this long pull on his cigarette and he doesn't see anything. So I have to get bolder. Papi, mi chocolate. Nothing. He says nothing. There's an older man nursing his beer. He's up a few bar stools away. And I see that he's watching us. 
the older man motions to the bartender to get me a candy bar. So the bartender reaches from behind and he sets the candy bar right next to me and it sits between me and my dad. Now, I stare at the brown wrapper. The first thing, the number one rule that every kid learns growing up is never take candy from a stranger. I know what I'm about to do is wrong, but I take that candy bar. I keep my eyes down on my lap and I unwrap it and I shove it into my mouth as fast as I can and I don't look up because if I look up, I know my father is going to make me stop eating it and I am not taking this candy bar home to share. <laughs> so this chocolate wads up in the back of my throat like a piece of peanut butter and I keep waiting for my dad to say something but he says nothing. Instead, he just sets his full glass of beer down on the bar he lifts me off the counter, he helps me put my coat on, and we walk out. Now we drive home, total silence, and all I feel is that chocolate balled up in the middle of my chest. We get to my house. I know he's not going to come in. He leans behind me, he pops open my car door, and I slide out. I walk up the front steps to my house, and I stand on the front porch, and I watch my dad drive away. In a house full of six kids, it's easy to get lost. So I walk into my house, and I disappear. It's getting late, and we're all watching and waiting for my dad to come home. It's Thanksgiving. My brother and I are standing in the front window watching, and the sky is turning a blue-black by then. My mother is on the sofa. She's nursing my two-month-old baby sister. My grandmother is in the kitchen with my little brother, and my uncle is sitting next to my mom on the sofa. Now, as I'm looking out the window, this, this icy blue light comes in, and I look at my brother. Now, this light makes him look like there's this light bulb turned on inside of him, and, and I'm so surprised, and I ask my brother, Pachito, don't you think it's weird? Didn't you always think that the light from a police car would look red up close and not blue? And I turn around to ask my uncle about this, but my uncle has made this huge leap from the sofa to the front door, and he has the front door open before the two policemen walking up can even knock. And we all hide behind my uncle. And I hear the two policemen say to each other, they look at all of us, and then they look at me, and they look at the kids, and they look at each other, and they say, he did this to her with all these kids? After that, everything explodes. My mom stands up. She drops my baby sister on the floor. My grandmother screams my dad's name, and my uncle just stands. The rest of us scatter. What my dad does after he drops me off that day is drive to Brown Deer Park, the park where he races his bicycle. And he parks his car facing the track, and he shoots himself in the temple. His funeral is a few days later, and it's just a block from our house, and my aunt walks us there. And I get to the church, and, and I see the gray casket in front of the church, and I know my dad's in there, so I run up to see my dad. But when I get up there, his face is, is the deepest, darkest purple I have ever seen. I mean, it is such an unforgettable color that if he showed me that color right now, I would recognize it in a minute. My family is sitting in the front row of the church, and I start to hear people behind me whispering, they're asking why. Does anybody know why he did it? Why did he do it? She's got all these kids. Why would he do that? And I get scared because I know why. So I run from the back, from the front of the church, and I hide in the back pew. And my aunt tries to pull me out. And I don't want anybody to ask me why because then I have to tell them that I know why. It was that candy bar. I never should have asked for that candy bar. After my dad dies, I physically stop talking. I don't use my voice again for the next five years. 
as I grow up, I learn more about my dad. I find out that he's an educated man, but because he could barely speak English, the only job he can find is sweeping floors. And the last job he has here, the employer cheats him out of his six months' work, saying he never worked there. I learned that he never got used to living in this country, and he never got used to my mom being the one who fed the family. As I get older, as an adult, I understand the reasons my dad did what he did, but the child in me remains in that moment when I took that candy bar, and I know that that day is my fault. Five years ago, I read an article written by a hospice nurse. She says that the biggest regret that people have on their deathbeds is not living a life true to who they are. I have lived a double life ever since my dad died. I have the life that the world sees, and then I have the day, the only life I know of, which is frozen in that day in that tavern. Two years after I read that article, I get a chance to be who I really am. I hear of an open call for submissions to a show called Listen to Your Mother. Now, I have never read in front of an audience before, but I drive the two hours and I audition, and I tell the people the story of the last day with my father. A week goes by and I make the cast. On the day of the show, I stand in front of 300 people, and my heart is pounding in my ears, and I am positive I'm going to faint when it's my turn to talk. But when I get up there, I'm so scared because I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm about to tell the deepest, darkest secret of my life, and I don't know if the audience is going to understand. I get up there to talk, and as soon as I start speaking, all of that disappears. And I feel this unexpected strength that comes from telling my story. And after the show, I feel 10 feet tall, and people are waiting to talk to me in the lobby, and there are so many of us that have a candy bar moment story from somebody they know that killed themselves. We all have a candy bar moment. Months go by, and the videos go up from the show, and I start getting emails. Somehow, I became the president of the Parent Suicide Club. And around the world, people are sending me letters, and they want to talk about how they feel like their parents' suicide was their fault. One day, I get an email, and it's different. It's from this young woman in Canada, and she has a two-year-old boy. And she tells me she's been suffering from this deep, dark depression, the kind that makes you wonder about your place in this world. Now, she doesn't want to leave her boy, but she just wants this pain to stop. And one day, she's home alone, and she's so scared. And while he takes his nap, she locks herself in the bathroom, and she pours enough pills in her hand to kill herself. And she doesn't want to leave her boy. She adores him, but she's just done. And in the middle of this moment, she is crying so hard she can't breathe. And she's terrified. And she doesn't know what she's going to do. And all she can think of is my story. She says she doesn't want my story to be the same story her son tells 20 years from now. She's alive, and she's my friend now. We tell our stories because they save us. Telling mine kept a little boy from losing his mom that day. And I found my voice again. Thank you. That was Alexandra Rosas. She's an award-winning blogger and a mother of three. To see a picture of Alexandra and a picture of her pappy, please visit themoth.org. Alexandra first told us about her story on our pitch line. Maybe you have a story you think we should hear. If so, go to themoth.org, click on Tell a Story, and it'll take you on a step-by-step how-to. 
Record it right on our site or call 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. The best pitches are developed for moth shows all around the country. You can find all of the stories you're hearing in this hour at the iTunes store or on our website, themoth.org, where you can also find out more about our storytellers. When we return, two men on a desperate quest to meet a 1970s television star. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson from The Moth. Our final story is from Arthur Bradford. Arthur is an award-winning author and documentary filmmaker. Here's Arthur, live at The Moth in New York City. Okay. I'm kneeling on the floor of a cheap roadside motel somewhere in western Tennessee. And next to me, leading me in prayer, is a middle-aged man, a large man with cerebral palsy named Ronnie Simonson. He says, bless my mother, my brothers and sisters, and my pastor back home in New Hampshire, and God bless Bob Hope and Cher and all three of Charlie's angels. Especially Jacqueline Smith, especially her. And then Ronnie says, and Lord, please help us get to California quickly, where I, where I know I'm going to meet my spiritual brother, Mr. Chad Everett, the star of CBS's drama Medical Center. And here I, I interrupt Ron. I say, Ron, you know, we might, we might not meet Chad Everett. You know, we're not sure that's going to happen. And he says, yeah, yeah, I know, but, but keep praying, keep praying. I first met Ronnie about eight years before that. I was working at a summer camp for people with disabilities. And I was a counselor there, and I, I had brought along a video camera because I was also interested in making films. And Ronnie was drawn to that camera. He came right up to me and wanted to talk about movies and, and TV. See, he, he, he had cerebral palsy in his legs, but he also had an interesting combination of, of mental conditions, uh, autism and, and, and obsessive-compulsive. And he... he it manifested itself in this extreme fascination with, with television and movie stars from the 1970s, which is when he was a kid. He spent most of his childhood in hospitals, and he, he became particularly obsessed with the, with the people that would play doctors on television. He, he took comfort in their calm voices. And there was one man, above all, who he held as sort of, a, sort of like a god, and that was Chad Everett, who played Dr. Joe Gannon on CBS's medical drama, <laughs> Medical Center. And, and I really liked Ron. He was, he was really fun. He, he was great on, on camera. He loved, he loved to be on camera. We, we made lots of uh, videos together at the camp. And, and some of the most popular videos were these, were these newscasts we would do. We, we made our own news show. And Ronnie was, was fantastic at that, especially when we would go downtown and he would interview people on the street. He was a, this large man, and when he would talk to people, he, he, he couldn't stand up for too long, so he would lean on them for balance while he was asking them questions. And he would get them to do skits. He, was, he had this really real ability to, to bring people out. And these films that we made... They, they, they kind of had this underground popularity, and eventually I was able to, to get some funding to make a film outside the camp. And, and the idea was we were going to drive across country with five people with disabilities from the summer camp. Um, we were going to go from their houses in New England all the way to Los Angeles, California. And everyone on the trip had their own hopes and dreams for going to California, a place they'd never been. But Ronnie's dreams overshadowed everybody else's. To him, California was the holy land. It was the place where he was destined to meet Mr. Chad Everett, his spiritual brother. It was his biggest dream. He told everybody, it's my biggest dream. And he took this biggest dream mission very, very seriously. It kind of stressed him out. In fact, as, as we went on the trip, he, he had this skin condition as well called psoriasis. And, and he would get these rashes on his arms when he got stressed out. And he would, he would itch at them. And, and I felt like this whole situation was, was mainly my responsibility as the director of this, 
ridiculous film, and I, 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 I decided I would be Ronnie's roommate across the country, and so every night in these hotels, I would help Ronnie apply the medication to his rashes, and then we would say a prayer. And that's how I end up in this hotel room in Tennessee, praying with Ronnie Simonson. And as Ronnie prays, I, I say my own little prayer. I, I pray, I'm not a very religious person. I had never really prayed much before. I'm 29 years old, and, but this is the first time I pray in earnest. And I say, I say, please help us get to California safely. And please, when we get there, please give me some guidance. Help me to, to solve this problem that we're going to have, this mess, when we get to California. Because I, I have this secret that I haven't shared with Ron. I probably should have shared it with him, but I just can't. And that is that I've gotten in touch with Chad Everett's agent before we went on the trip. And I'd asked, could we set up a meeting between these two people? I, I knew it was going to be a fantastic moment on film. And his agent made me understand that Chad Everett was a very busy man and that he wasn't going to have time for something like that. In fact, he didn't really want to encourage this sort of obsessive fan that apparently he had. And I probably should have told Ronnie that, but I, he didn't take disappointment very well. And I'd, I'd helped Ronnie write letters to numerous celebrities over the years, and, and we had written to Chad Everett, and, and one year he'd called me up, he was so excited because he got this headshot in the mail, it was this smiling picture of Chad Everett, and Ronnie memorized every word that Chad Everett had, had, had signed on this picture, which was on his wall. It said, to Ron, life's not meant to be lived in reruns. Watch me in the new love boat. <laughs> Walk in the light, signed Chad Everett. <laughs> and, and, and so all the way across the country, as we were driving from across Texas to the Grand Canyon, Ronnie would, would go over the contents of that letter with me. He would say, what does that mean, life's not meant to be lived in reruns? And, and, and what does that mean, to walk in the light? I'm walking in the light, right? And I would say, yeah, Ron, you're, you're walking in the light. And, and, and when we reached California, it was, it was a... It was a really wonderful moment. We, we all go swimming in the ocean, and everybody's really happy except for, of course, Ron, because he's on a, on a, on a higher mission. And so Ron and I come to this agreement. A everyone else involved with the film is going to fly home, and he and I are going to stay in, in Los Angeles, and we're going to spend a few more days. I, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to hang out there in California. And, and so everyone goes home, and Ronnie and I end up in this hotel room together, putting on his psoriasis medicine. And I have no plan at all. And, and along, this, along the, the trip, someone, had, someone who I believe was very well-meaning in giving Ronnie this advice, had said to Ronnie, hey, hey Ronnie, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be so self-conscious. And, and, and Ronnie, for about the 150th time that trip, asked me, he says, what does that mean, self-conscious? And I, I tell him, well, well, Ronnie, to be self-conscious, that means like to, to worry about yourself too much. And, and then he says for like the 150th time, he asks me, I'm not being self-conscious right now, am I? <laughs> and and, and I, I just want to say, I'm, 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 I'm kind of fed up at this point. I just want to say, you know, like by definition, you, you asking me that question, that means you're being self-conscious, right? Like, and, and, but I don't say that. I've, I, I know better. And I say, no, Ronnie, you're not, you're not being self-conscious at all. And, and on, the, on our last day in California, we, we hatched this plan out of desperation. We go to this town near Malibu out in the, in the, in the hills where uh, Ronnie had heard that Chad Everett lived. And we go there and, and we go to a shopping center and Ronnie gets really excited because he interviews this kid who apparently had bagged Chad Everett's groceries. And then, and then someone else tells us that they know the street that Chad Everett lives on. And so, Ronnie says, I just want to see what his house looks like. So we go up and then we get to this gate and it's a gated community. And then I find myself like sneaking past as the guard's not looking. And, and then we get to what we think is his house. And, and Ronnie says, I just want to take a picture in front of his house. And so Ronnie gets out and it's not until we're hiding in the bushes and we've been there for like over an hour that I realize that this is a terrible idea. What? <laughs> Why are, why are we here? What, what did I think was going to happen? I had this crazy idea that Chad Everett would see Ronnie and he would understand that, 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 that this was someone that he should get to know. But of course, if Chad Everett walked out of that house, Ronnie was going to rush towards him and, and <laughs> someone was going to call the police. It was going to be, it was gonna be a, a disaster. And so it was with a certain sense of relief that I felt when a security guard came up and told us that we had to leave. And so... We did leave, and that film ends with Ronnie kissing Chad Everett's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And, and it's, it's a good ending, but of course it's not the ending that Ronnie and I wanted for that film. 
And as we took the film to film festivals ar around the country, Ronnie, Ronnie became like sort of a little bit of a celebrity. And, and it was funny because that didn't mean anything to him to be a celebrity himself. All he cared about was he would ask anybody in the audience at the festivals if maybe they knew a way to get this film into Chad Everett's hands. <laughs> and, and uh, throughout that year, Ronnie would just call me up and he'd say, I, I have, you need to send a, a tape to this person because they might know Chad Everett's daughter. And, and I, I was starting to get kind of annoyed, to be honest. Like, I was like, man, we went all the way to California. Like, why, why can't he just drop this whole thing? And, 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 and I was kind of annoyed with myself, too, because I had become tethered to this dream of Ronnie's. And on top of that, I had a version of the dream that was a nightmare for me which was that Ronnie would somehow meet Chad Everett and I wouldn't be there. That kept me up at night. If, if, Ronnie, if Ronnie were to meet him and I wasn't there, I, I, I didn't think I could live with myself for the rest of my life. I honestly felt that way and I couldn't, I, 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 I was in this state and then one day I got a phone call and there was a deep voice on the other end of the line and it said, hello, this is Chad Everett. And I said, no, it's not. It's, it can't. And he said, yes, it is. And, and it was Chad Everett. And he had seen our film, and he liked the film. He liked it a lot. And in fact, he agreed that if we could get Ronnie to California, he would meet Ronnie, and he would do an interview with him. And so I, I hung up the phone, and I drove three hours to Ronnie's house, and I said, Ronnie, Chad Everett saw the film, and he wants to meet you. And Ronnie said, oh, boy. And, and, and for two weeks straight, Ronnie just couldn't sleep. All he could do was call me up and talk about exactly what was going to happen. when we and, and eventually, we got on a plane, and we flew out to California. All the whole way, Ronnie's clapping his hands and rocking back. Everyone he meets, he tells him that he's going to achieve his biggest dream. He's going to meet Chad Everett. And I, the filmmaker in me planned this out. So I said, we're going to do this on a beach because it's wide open. It's, an, it's a big, wide open space, and there's lots of room. And, and I thought that was a good plan until we get to the beach, and I'm walking with Ron on the sand, and at this point, Ronnie's legs are really kind of giving out, and he can hardly walk on solid ground without assistance. And the sand, he can't even stand up on. It's, it, it, I realized it, it was kind of a bad idea to do this on a beach. And we sit him down on a beach chair, and I'm trying to think, like, where else could we do this when this convertible pulls up and the license plate says, Sir Chad, <laughs> and, and, and down at the other end of the beach, this handsome older man steps out and he starts walking across the beach and Ronnie spots him, he's 100 yards away and Ronnie spots him and says, is that, is that Chad Everett? And Chad Everett says, yes it is, you betcha. And Ronnie hoists himself up out of this chair and he starts running across the beach. He's running. I've never seen Ronnie run ever in my life. And he is running across the beach. He's kicking up sand. He's going, Chad Everett! Chad Everett! And, and I think he's going to fall and wipe out. And Chad Everett's going, slow down! Slow down! Slow down! And, and Ronnie's running towards him. And he looks like a little boy. He does. He looks like a little boy. And when he reaches Chad Everett, he throws his arms around him. And he says, Chad, I'm so happy to see you. And, and, they, and they have a wonderful time. They, they, they do skits together on the beach. And... <laughs> Ronnie interviews him and they say a prayer and it's, it's a wonderful meeting. And, and we take the red eye home that night and, and Ronnie, he's exhausted. He's, he's a man who hasn't slept for, for weeks, it seems. And, and he says to me, he says to me, well, Arthur, we did it. And then he finally goes to sleep. And, and after that trip, I didn't hear from Ronnie for quite a while. And I, that was strange because he would call me so often. And when I finally did hear from Ron, he had some bad news. Um, he, he, uh, he had been diagnosed with leukemia. And his mother told me privately that he only had six months. He was given six months to live. And, uh, and Ron said to me, his, uh, he said to me, look, I, I know that Chad Everett's a really busy man, but do you think you could, you could tell him about this? And, um, and I said, sure, Ron, I can, I can t let him know. And so I did. I told Chad Everett. And uh, an amazing thing happened then. Uh, Chad Everett called Ronnie every Sunday. And they would talk. Um, and they would say a prayer. And he, without fail, he called Ronnie every Sunday. And Ronnie, Ronnie outlived that diagnosis by, by months and months. He lived for over two years. In fact, he went back to California and saw Chad and had a party to celebrate. <laughs> and eventually, he, he did die of that disease. And, and after, after his death, I, I, I thought a lot about the lessons that I had learned
from Ronnie Simonson about the importance of having a, a biggest dream, and, and it, no matter how silly it is. And I, and I often wondered, did I, did I kind of spend too much time chasing this other person's dream that wasn't really my dream? And, uh, and then recently we were putting together this compilation of, of these tapes that we'd made with Ronnie, and, and, um, and the editor called me up and said, hey, I've got this audio track I want you to hear. It's, it's, I think you'll find it funny. And so he plays for me this audio track and it's this person just breathing really like <laughs> and it sounds like it's like someone who's like going up the stairs or, or really out of breath and then, I, and, then, and then I hear my voice going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And, and it, it's the audio track from my camera as I'm filming Ronnie running towards Chad Everett. And I'd never heard that. I'd always heard Ronnie's mic, not my mic. And I'm saying, oh my God, oh my God. And as they hug, I swear you can almost hear my, like, my heart beating out of my chest. I'm so excited by this meeting. And, and it was in hearing that track, I realized that, that Ronnie's dream really had become my dream too. And, 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 that, and those moments of excitement and joy that, that, you, that you have are, are really worth something. They're awesome. And I just have always wanted to thank Ron for sharing that with me. Thanks. <laughs> That was Arthur Bradford. His films include How's Your News and Six Days to Air. He's also the author of the book Dog Walker and the children's book Benny's Brigade. I'm going to meet Chad Everett, Chad Everett, Chad Everett, Chad Everett, Chad Here's a bit of audio from the first meeting between Ronnie and Chad Everett. How are you going to feel when Chad Everett comes? I'm going to feel good. I'm going. He's going to hug me, I'm going to hug him. Yeah. He knows I'm going to be here, right? Yeah, well, he does. Oh, this is going to be his pleasure for me as well. You know, Ron has been a long-time correspondent, and he's written me beautiful letters, and sung songs and birthday tapes. and He's really a, he's really a very spiritual man, and I think he's uh, definitely been anointed living living proof that it's uh, it's what's inside that counts there's the guy <laughs> is that Chad Everett yeah you better believe it bud how you doing hey, no, Chad how are you Chad how are you hey Ron how you doing Chad Everett easy easy how you doing bud Bye, Chad. Bye. good to see you bud good to see you my friend yeah, right. I'm looking forward to being interviewed by you, man. Hey, can we do a net medical center act together? We could, yeah, sure, sure. Give me a scalpel. To watch the video of Ronnie meeting Chad for the first time, visit the Radio Extras page at themoth.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for the Moth Radio Hour. this hour was Jennifer Hickson, who also directed the stories in the show, along with Maggie Sino. Let's see. Uh, would you do a skit with me from medical stuff? I'll be Dr. Ron, and you'll be Dr. Gannett, and I pretend I, there's something wrong with my hand. I can never practice surgery again. You can never practice surgery? That's the improv? Yeah. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Whitney Jones. You can never practice surgery. Well, you, know well, you be Joe Gannon, now, and I'll be Ron, Dr. Ron, okay? Go. Uh, we've got to go into this surgery now, Dr. Ron. Uh, you ready? Can I do surgery, Joe? My goodness. There's What's something happening? wrong in my hand, Dr. Gannon. Yeah, the tendons seem to be all pulled apart here. Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour, Lines on My Face by Peter Frampton, 
Always Departing by Brad Meldow, and I Will Wander by Lawless Music. You think I need an examination, Doctor? I think you're gonna have to have some surgery on this hand before we can let you hold any more instruments, Doctor, huh? The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, with help from Vicki Merrick. Do you have a stethoscope? You have a stethoscope? No, a stethoscope. There's no heartbeat in your hand. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. There's a pulse up here. Yeah, the pulse pulse to to, to your hand is pretty strong. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. I think the surgery will be successful. You think so? We'll schedule it for tomorrow afternoon. What time? 12. 12 o'clock? 1. Uh, what about your lunch, doctor? I'll skip lunch for this one. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.